name is Terry Givens, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Center for Higher Education Leadership, and welcome to the Higher Education Leadership Podcast. We are very happy today to be joined by Gary Stalker, who is the CEO and founder of College Viability. And I met Gary on LinkedIn because it turns out that we were both talking about the same thing at the same time. We both are, uh, we come from higher ed, and I had written about uh, my ideas around you know, colleges creating alliances because we're both concerned about the issue of liberal arts colleges and you know how they're going to survive not just the current COVID crisis they you know liberal arts colleges have been in trouble for a long time and I, when I was at Menlo College it became clear that issues around enrollment and you know maintaining enrollment and uh, retention et cetera et cetera were having a big impact on the bottom line. And we're seeing this across liberal arts colleges around the country. And so Gary and I have uh, are collaborating now on a project to help uh, small liberal arts colleges come together and form alliances so that they can have economies of scale, you know, combine some teaching, et cetera, but basically to help them survive, particularly in this time of the COVID-19 crisis. So Gary, can you introduce, introduce yourself for us? Sure, uh, Dr. Gibbons, thanks for spending some time again uh, this afternoon. I appreciate that. And interestingly, I am not a higher ed kind of person for life. My original background is in the medical laboratory. I have worked in hospital laboratories, I have managed hospital laboratories, and I have sold capital equipment to hospital laboratories over the course of my career. And it was really back in about 2010 when I finished my work, my doctoral work uh, in management at one of the private universities here in St. Louis that I started getting into higher ed first as an adjunct, then as full-time faculty. And then in 2015, I ended up serving as a chief of staff to a college president at a small rural college here in Missouri. And one of the things that we found out early, early on in our tenure there was they had spent the last 10 years spending down the earnings on their endowment to keep their lights on. And that led the long process to me starting to look at financial statements, looking at the National Center for Education Statistics data, and really to the evolution of college viability and the College Viability app that I'll talk about a little bit today. Um, great. So, I mean, it's really interesting, you know, how we, we all come at this from different perspectives. I mean, I was a political scientist who became an administrator and then a provost. And, um, but, you know, I, you know, for me, it was almost like the opposite. I, I really got interested in what the private sector was doing around higher education. So I spent a lot of time learning about ed tech and, and you know, kind of what are the latest innovations in, in higher ed. And, and it, you know, it, it occurred to me that higher ed doesn't do a very good job of, of you know, incorporating technology to, you know, reduce costs, things like that. But anyway, that's a whole, we could have a whole nother conversation about that. But, you know, it does come back to the question of, you know, are private colleges going to close? I mean, that's the, the I mean, we are seeing them close. So we know that's happening. But, you know, will they, will, are we going to see this as an ongoing trend? I, I think there's two ways to answer that question. The first is for me to read a list of colleges that have closed in the last five years, who I am certain did not think they would be closed five years ago. And it mm -hmm. starts out with the, the tragic situation at Mount Ida and St. Joseph in Rutland, uh, Merrillhurst and Wheelock out west, Newberry, Hampshire, Green Mountain, College of New Rochelle, and here this past summer, McMurray, Concordia in Portland, and Concordia, by the way, had over 4,000 students, and then a small private in Ohio, urban, urban, Urbana, I think is what it's called, university. 
But to answer the questions, will private colleges close, Terry, they already have. Mm -hmm. And here's why that will logically continue to be the case. I can demonstrate through the National Center for Education Statistics data and this IPEDS database. Enrollment is down. The tuition discount colleges offer to students is way up. And that means tuition revenue is way down. And we're not talking a once in a while thing. We're talking a demonstrated pattern that you can see through the College Viability app in the fiscal years 2012-13 through the fiscal years 2017 to 2018. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting because um, you, you know, I'm curious because we've seen a lot of activity kind of in the Northeast and people say, well, it's because the Northeast is losing students and so on. But, um, you know, is, is there going to be a particular region of the country where we're going to see more closures? Again, you can look at the standard conventional wisdom and it says Northeast and it says Midwest. But just think about the list that I just read to you. The most substantive closure of all of those was in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And that was, right. Concordia important. It was Concordia in Portland. And then, again, looking at the data that we talk about, we'll talk about it in more detail a little bit later on. I can offer a couple of states that I have particular concern is. And the one is Vermont, which is kind of the epicenter of college, private college closures. Mm -hmm. I think Pennsylvania is yeah. grossly overpopulated with colleges. Yep. And I think here in the Midwest, while I have concerns about Illinois and Missouri, if you ask me to list my top three, believe it or not, it's going to be Iowa, Wisconsin, and maybe Minnesota. And again, that's looking at the data, looking at the trends. Um, it just doesn't look promising for the reasons I shared. Increased enrollment, increased discounts, and decreased revenue from tuition. Yeah, that's really interesting because, yeah, I do think people tend to focus on the Northeast, but I do think you're right that the Midwest and, and even here in the West, um, we're going to see more of that activity. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's really interesting to me that Concordia, you know, we know why. I mean, it was partly because of this really bad right. decision they made about right, right. online learning. But, um, it, you know, it's also this idea that these colleges think they can can live off of their endowments, and that's just a short-term strategy. So I'm curious, um, you know, with these colleges that have closed, what have been some of the key factors? Well, you know, the obvious ones are, are a lack of net cash from tuition. Mm -hmm. One of the patterns we have seen, and not really, Terry, from closures as much, but from any kind of business model change, the announcement of potential closures, of furloughs, of layoffs, uh, any kind of discussion of mergers, there is a built-in predisposition to protest. Mm -hmm. One of the things I have written about many times uh, on social media is one of the factors associated with the consolidation that is inevitable in small and medium-sized private colleges is part of the process will be protest. And again, I'll go back to Portland and uh, Concordia in Portland, it's kind of absurd, but Terry, within 24 hours, one of the students at Concordia Portland had filed a class action lawsuit. Mm -hmm. 24 hours. And there had been sit-ins and protests and community meetings, and they're all legitimate. There's nothing wrong with them. But what's going to be a challenge for college leadership is to recognize that those protests are simply part of the process that mm -hmm. needs to be navigated for success in changing the business model of these struggling private colleges. Right. Yeah. And, you know, 
I think people are particularly concerned now that they're seeing colleges that are having to go online. And speaking of class action lawsuits, we have students, you know, there's various class action lawsuits going on now about to, students wanting their uh, refund on tuition if their institution is going online. I mean, what are kind of the kinds of things we're going to be seeing happening over the next several months? You know, we all have to make assumptions, operating premises, whether it's for business or for research paper or whatever the case may be. And I'm really operating on a two-phase premise. Right or wrong, I'm operating on a two-phase premise. And the first phase is there will be dozens of small to medium-sized private college closures in the coming months. Don't ask me to nail down the time frame because I'm not smart enough to do that. I just know by looking at the finances, the trends are awful. Mm -hmm. The second phase, I think, will be the, the recognition by those that survived the first phase and didn't have to shut her up in any form or fashion to recognize the value of what you and I have been talking about for months now, and that is the, the value and the utility of consolidation. And there are a variety of models. We use the term alliance as a general reference, but it can be joint ventures, it can be operating agreements, consortiums maybe, uh, various business models like that. But I think that second phase will be when we see substantial and quick to form consolidated small to medium sized private college groups. And again, I always think 10 or more is a better number. You just can't get the scale needed with onesies and twosies in terms of consolidations, whatever the business model might be. Right. Yeah, I, I agree completely with that. And, you know, I wonder, um, you know, it seems like the alliance model is the only way to go for, for these colleges. Otherwise, you know, it seems like there, are, there, there just isn't any safety net. I, I think people are hoping the federal government will step in with more funding, but that's just a short-term fix um, because it seems like regardless of what happens, just because of the trend that was happening even before COVID, that, you know, it doesn't seem like there is any way that these closures won't take place. And let me jump in quickly, you know, Think about our history as a nation. Almost without exception, every other industry, airlines, hotels, rental cars, public school districts have consolidated in some form or fashion to get the economies of scale and improve the quality and service they've offered. There's no logical reason to think this is not an inevitable conclusion in higher education. Mm -hmm. But I think the trick is, is that the institutions and leaders themselves have to be willing to say, we are going to do whatever it takes to preserve the quality and value you get from this institution. And if that means collaborating with other institutions to give you the absolute best education that we can, then, you know, I think that is, is what the message needs to be, right? Then that helps to address some of the protests you were talking about before. I mean, if students oh, sure. want, yeah, I mean, if students and parents want to see lower costs, guess what? Consolidation is the way to do it. And you, know, you talk about quality. And, and again, let's go back and link quality to the financial challenges that any number of colleges, scores and scores of colleges are facing. Mm -hmm. You can't assume quality will be the same when finance is difficult. So even these colleges that we look at and can look at their financials and say, man, they're in trouble. I, you know, I'm not about to predict which ones are gonna close. But I can suggest that those with financial trouble will have extreme difficulty in providing a quality, define that any way you want, a quality education for the students who choose that college despite 
their financial challenges. It's just not logical to think otherwise. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, I mean, what is the catastrophic scenario for small to medium-sized private colleges? I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I think I'm one of scores, if not hundreds, making that prediction. Uh, mm -hmm. and it's, yeah, it's actually, not, I'm kind of getting tired of that prediction, yeah, <laughs> to be yeah. honest. And again, I'll, I'll offer a quick scenario, and it's nothing that's going to knock anybody and their listeners out of their chairs, but the COVID trauma extends into the fall of 2021. Uh, enrollment and revenues plummet through 2020 and well into 2021. I think we'll start to see financial financial exigencies declared by more and more privates just as their last resort to survive. Uh, we've talked about dozens closed in the coming months. And I think something else you, I haven't seen much about, but I'm going to throw that out just briefly, is I, I think it's reasonable to operate with the premise that these accrediting agencies, and nothing to generally write home about in the first place, but I think these accrediting agencies step up and start to warn the public about privates in trouble. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a domino impact there. And if we see that happen once or twice or a handful of times, it's reasonable to assume that public perception of small to medium-sized private colleges, especially those that the College Viability App shows with terrible trends, cannot reasonably expect to survive in their current model. But let's go to what you've said. I'm going to steal your line all the time. Your approach and what I'm a part of is helping to save 100, 100 private colleges. Mm -hmm. Saving you know, this, this saving scenario is possible, but it cannot be as parochial, standalone, underfunded, undercapitalized business organizations called private colleges. Right. Yeah. No. That that I think we're. It's kind of like that era of viability is gone. Speaking of viability, um, I mean, I I was really um, amazed when I. I start connecting with you to find out that you have this college viability app. And I, I want to mention that, you know, back in December, um, actually November, uh, was the time when we both know Nick Dukoff at, at Edmit and they, he and his uh, partner, Sabrina, were trying to put together a database of um, institutions and basically to try to predict which ones were going to fail. Right. And they, they gotten, you know, they, they had a few <laughs> threats of lawsuits, et cetera. <laughs> so that did not come out, but we've seen since then, you know, other people like Jeff Galloway and, and various others, you know, trying to predict which colleges are going to fail based on financials. But what I love, I've gotten to know your college viability app. And what I love about it is it actually allows for benchmarking. And I know this is something that, you know, various people could use, but could you explain it a little more and, and who should be using it? And, and Nick and I have talked a couple of times and, and believe it or not, during 2019, I was working on developing my own predictive model. Mm -hmm. And it was within a, a few days or a week or so of Nick's trauma with his initial release. And I said, you know what? I'm just not comfortable with any predictive model. And I moved over to developing what has now become the College Viability app. And it's an important distinction because we don't do predictions of the financial health of any college anywhere. We certainly provide an easy tool for families and students and college leadership and higher education pundits to compare one college to another. So say, you know, your, your, your children are looking at college and you made the decision to look at some private colleges. I would be reticent to let my children go to a college that was predicted to close. However, mm -hmm. it's not really fair to predict that closure. But I can tell you by looking at the data, and I'm guessing you've seen the same thing, Terry, 
we can bring up a handful of colleges um, right now. In fact, I've got some Wisconsin stuff that I'm working on in front of me right now. And I can tell you of the 25 private colleges in Wisconsin, four of them and four only had double digit enrollment growth, enrollment growth from 2013 through 2018. Mm-hmm. Two had less, had a handful, and the remaining 19 had negative full-time enrollment, full-time equivalent enrollment growth in six years. No way to look at that as, as other than a negative trend. And there was one Cardinal Stritch University lost 1,900 students over six years. Mm-hmm. It's, it's based out of uh, one of the, the Milwaukee suburbs, I think. And there are others who lost hundreds. So we don't compare we just predict. And, and one of the things that really sh- shocked me as I pulled this together was graduation rates. We've seen all sorts of graduation rates posted in a variety of media, but the app lets you customize the comparisons of the ones that you want. Here's what struck me. There are way, way, way too many small to medium-sized private colleges whose six-year um, graduation rate from start to finish over six years is hovering around 50% or lower Mm-hmm. Please don't tell me that anybody consciously wants to send their students, adults, not traditional or traditional, to a student that only graduates to a college that only graduates half of the people who start. Mm-hmm. But on right. the same breath, there are colleges in the mid to upper 70s that do a fabulous job. So it's really mm-hmm. the comparison focus that we do on the College Viability app, not the prediction focus. Right. Um, so I'm wondering. What could change your vision that many private colleges will close? And this you don't see much of in the literature. It is like we we teased each other a minute ago, everybody's predicting demise and that's a likely scenario. But there's one factor that I try to characterize this. I've seen some very small mentions in the media, probably the higher ed media over the last couple of months. But it has to do with endowments. And we know most endowment funds are restricted. They're used for certain purposes. Mm-hmm. But I was, when I was part of the small uh, private college administration in here in Missouri, we appealed through legal means to the attorney general to release some $12 million in restricted endowment funds to help keep the lights on. That's not the, the perfect characterization, but that's what it was. And ultimately prevailed in, in a, in a uh, public hearing uh, in front of a judge to release those $12 million in funds to get this college through a tough time period. Mm-hmm. I think if there becomes a trend toward that, where more and more colleges find this kind of relief, you'll see fewer closures now. But let's keep in mind, once those endowment funds are sucked up to keep the lights on, to meet payroll, they're gone. Mm-hmm. You're not going to replace those in any reasonable kind of time frame. So when that next down period comes or when you need some funds for that next capital project or for routine maintenance, it's just not gonna be there. So that kind of action might slow down the trend. There are a lot of risks to doing that. Public perception of a failing college could be one of the many, um, but that would be how this whole um, episodic prediction of failure could at least slow down. Right. I mean- so why why aren't these colleges out there doing this <laughs> already? Um, I mean, it makes sense, and and you know they they. I mean, I guess you know my question really is you know we're we're trying to get out there and help these institutions. Um, 
why aren't more people jumping to this? I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. We all heard the line that culture eats change for breakfast, lunch, supper, whatever, to whatever meal that you mm -hmm. want. And it is, there is a culture. I mean, there's cultures everywhere. There's a culture in your family and mine, my community and yours, and all of these colleges and businesses. And it is so historically parochial mm -hmm. that it is a giant leap of cultural change to say, you know what, we could do this better as part of a larger organization. Um, my perspective is the economics become so bad that now all of a sudden something that was not culturally, culturally acceptable yesterday becomes culturally mandated tomorrow just because of the economic and financial pressures. Um, so what are the advantages of saying, you know, bringing 10 private colleges together, even if it's over a four or five state region? Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and let's not forget the fact that geography, proximity is not an important consideration for consolidation. It's just not, and we're seeing that with, the, with all the online and remote learning that's going on now. And I, I did some research and it was on, I think it was 29 um, small to medium-sized private colleges in Missouri and Illinois. I think it was their 2017 total expenses. And I totaled all the actual expenses from their audited financial statements. And it was 1.5 billion or something like that for those 29 colleges. And I said, tell you what, what if we just scraped 2% or 20% of savings off of that 1.5 billion across these almost 30 colleges? And it was tens of millions of dollars that the consolidated group could save that the standalone parochial colleges could not. So we're talking cash available for infrastructure, for increased marketing. And then on the other hand, we're looking at labor savings. And again, I know it's, it's, <laughs> it's challenging to say that there will be job loss. Mm -hmm. But I will, but, I've said it before and I'll say it again, but it's going to happen and it's going to be at the senior leadership level. A college with 500 to 1,000 students does not need their own president or CFO or HR VP or marketing VP or admissions VP. They just mm -hmm. don't. It's mm -hmm. just they've always operated that way. And I know one of the things you and I have talked about, let's just quickly envision the scenario where 15 colleges have come together. Geography be damned, it doesn't really matter. Now, all of a sudden, those groups are not marketing for one college. They're offering students different degrees, different physical, different campuses across 15 different colleges, lowering their cost base. And I promise you that, the, the, that those organizations who are first movers to this consolidated model with 10 or more in that kind of range, um, private colleges are going to see a distinct competitive advantage. And on the other hand, those that are laggards, for whatever reason, will find themselves at such a distinct competitive disadvantage that they'll quickly move to find ways to match the business model that their more successful, large-scale, allied competitors have already moved to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like any industry, right? I mean, it's the first movers who have the advantage. and. And you know they they can take advantage of all the the different aspects of this that would allow them to become you know a much more attractive uh, you know education program for a variety of students. And I think one of the things that I try to emphasize is that um, you know there's all these students out there. You know people are always saying, oh, we have this enrollment decline because of, you know birth rates and it's like. The reality is we aren't educating enough of our population. <laughs> you know, that's what right. drives me crazy is people like, oh, it's yeah. 
high school students decline. Well, more of those high school students need to go to college. And I'm sorry, I'm not one of those people who believes that, you know, college is going away. I'm, you know, I believe there is absolute truly value in the liberal arts education. And that's why so many people want it, right? It's, it's about coming of age. It's about learning the basics of, of culture, you know, of our culture as a country and, you know, civic uh, education, all of that. And it gives students a chance to really get a good grip on, you know, the basics. But, you know, if we can, we need to be offering more of that, not less. The trick is making it affordable. I mean, we can talk about the financial issues that students are dealing with, with uh, student loans and all of that. And, you know, this alliance model would allow you know, tuition to be lowered and the quality to be increased. So, you know, as we're saying, who wouldn't want that? But um, we only have a, a couple minutes left, Gary. I mean, is there anything else you want to add that just kind of uh, is a, a good sales, you know, uh, why should people do this? Why should the, the college leaders out there consider making this shift? I guess a couple of things. First of all, it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. Somebody's going to do it. We're not talking rocket science. It is a massive challenge for sure. But we're not launching a rocket into space. And so somebody's going to do it. We already know folks are talking about it, right? Mm -hmm. But I really yeah. want to close with just, just using the numbers again. And let's assume 20 private colleges close between now and the end of this year. And let's say the average enrollment is 1,000 students in, the, in those 20 colleges. So there's now somewhere in the vicinity of 20,000 students looking for a home. Yep. The opportunity to get scale for those same 20,000 students, whether no matter how they divvy up, is a microcosmic example of what could happen if colleges consolidated in the first place, those 20,000 students would already have a place to go if they were part of a larger consolidated system that did not have the financial challenges that these standalone parochial colleges have. So mm -hmm. my final word is it's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. The first, be the last, but it's gonna happen because the economic and financial logic is just too strong. And I completely agree because I've been trying to make the same argument all for the last couple of years. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> In any case, Gary, thank you so much for, for joining us today and for being such a strong advocate of, of private liberal arts colleges. I, I do think they have a lot to offer to a wide range of students. I know I sent my own son to a private liberal arts college. Um, but, um, you know, I, I do think this is some of the most important work we have to do in higher ed today, and I'm very happy to be working with you on this. And again, this is the Higher Education Leadership Podcast, and I hope you will check us out at our website at www.higheredleads.com. And I hope everybody just has an absolutely fabulous day. Thanks a lot, Gary. My pleasure. Okay. Bye. -bye.